Welcome to another riveting episode of the Seeking Truth Podcast. That intro song was by my buddy Kyle McFarland off of his Flavor Crystals EP. That flavor you just tasted is called Blue Raspberry. And if you liked it, you can check out his whole album on his Tingle SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash TNGL. Let me know what you think. I'm uh, thinking about using that song as the theme for a new podcast I have coming up called the CypherCon Podcast. Uh, Keep an eye out for that. That is a new project that I'm working on, interviewing all of the uh, CypherCon speakers that are coming up in April 2019 for the CypherCon Conference in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So, Keep an eye out for that podcast. Uh, speaking of CypherCon, I just recorded the first CypherCon podcast with Nick Wurzel. Uh, he's a foraging expert, and we had a fantastic conversation. And after we recorded that podcast, Michael Getzman, the organizer of the Hacker Conference CypherCon, Nick and I uh, were all chatting about biohacking the genome and I decided to turn on the mic and record another podcast. Uh, We talk about the advantages of biohacking your genome so you can mitigate against disease and we go down all sorts of different rabbit holes and we probably could have talked on this topic for a number of hours uh, but I had to get to another appointment so so we cut it short and uh, maybe we will have to do a round two. So uh, without further ado, uh, enjoy the podcast on hacking your genome. Welcome to another riveting episode of the Seeking Truth podcast. Today, Jeff is out at the border doing some reporting, and I have some special guests here. I have uh, Michael Gutzman. I'll let him introduce himself, and uh, I'm also sitting with uh, Nick Wurzel, and uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about mitigating the risk against disease in creative ways. Michael Gutzman is a is a hacker of sorts, and he has the hacker mentality that, you know, when you see certain things that you can mitigate the risk, you know, especially with disease, you know, we were just talking about this, we thought, well, this would be a really interesting uh, podcast to, to go down and find out. How, you know, what are the everyday things that we can do to, to help uh, mitigate against disease? So, Nick, why don't you introduce yourself first? Nick's a, a forager and a very interesting uh, person as well. And we're, we're just sitting around talking and getting ready for uh, CypherCon. And so we got, we got a number of topics we're talking about. But, uh, Nick, why don't you give us a little intro to who you are? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Nick Wersel. From Milwaukee, I'm uh, going to be talking over at CypherCon about uh, foraging and how it relates to uh, hacking. How it uh, can uh, exist outside the the food system that we live in um, in creative ways by finding food where it grows naturally. And maybe we can wiggle that into how uh, you know how does that protect against disease? And I think there's sure. Like, there's a lot yeah, there I think I probably have some uh, some better opinions about that when we're talking about building materials. Because by day I'm a tile setter. So. Sure. <laughs> All right. Very good. And Michael, uh, could you give us a little intro to you? Sure. Yeah. I um, I'm the creator of CypherCon, a uh, uh, hacker conference here in Wisconsin. Um, but I also used to work in healthcare. Um, protecting electronic medical records and medical devices. And one of the areas when I was protecting 
Uh, electronic medical records was each individual has this footprint of their health. Um, and I see how genetics is starting to be added into their profile. And here it is something that needs to be protected. If your DNA gets lost, it's not like a credit card where you can just change your number. It's essentially the blueprint of who you are. And starting to dig more and more into the healthcare part of it, I started um, sequencing my whole family and opening up my family to medical research to help you know the humans humans and businesses create better medicines, better understanding of our species, and try to push things forward. So essentially. I dove deep and hard into biohacking. So you took the, you take the traditional security mentality of overcoming limitations, um, and starting looking at human bodies as computers. So that's kind of what led us, led my family into diving into our genetics to see what we can learn about ourselves from uh, a healthcare standpoint. Wow. And what made you want to do this? Like why, what was the real, you know, driver to, to dig into the DNA and doing all the sequencing and all that? Yeah. So I don't like unanswered questions of who I am and what should I be concerned about? Um, you see diseases all over the place and you're like, whoa, you know, could I, could I, or even my children be susceptible to these kind of diseases? And when I found that there, there's, we have the capability of, you know, analyzing our genetics and getting a rough idea. I mean, we're very primitive in our understanding of, you know, our, our existence as a whole, let alone the code that makes us exist. Um, but there were some answers out there. Um, I figured I would invest in trying to find out what are the risks to our family and what can I do to lower those risks. Um, can you talk a little bit about that process? So what did you have to do? Like what was, what was the process? Yeah. So the process, it went from, um, in the early two thousands, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to do a, a, like a full genome sequence of a human. When did they do the first one? Do you you know, I think it was like either late nineties or early two thousands. Yeah, it was, I'm going to say around 2001 ish, um, was the full human genome. Um, we'll swing back after this podcast and make sure we have that right. Yeah. But, um, so in in the year 2007, there were three different technologies that all came out at about the same time, um, one being CRISPR-Cas9 um, that dropped the price of sequencing significantly. Like literally 2006, it cost, you know, $50,000, and in 2007, it was less than $10,000. Right? Wow. So the significant drop in... Um, in the pricing of sequencing, um, allowed this to become a little more mainstream. And that's, I, I equate the year 2007 as the start of modern understanding of genetics. So in the year 2007, 2008-ish, um, I realized that this new paradigm, there's a company called uh, Family Tree DNA, and you can send in your genetics and look into your mitochondrial DNA, which comes from your mother's mother's mother's, and the Y chromosome um, that's father's father's father. And you can really piece together your origins of all humanity reversing back to the mother of all mothers or the father of all fathers, affectionately called Adam and Eve, 
um, and see where your ancestors have evolved throughout the planet to where we are now. So once I started looking at, like, I could see, you know, my, my dad's side of the family came from Eastern Europe and my mom's side of the family came from more of the, you know, UK area. And then prior to that, you know, um, you know, the Middle East. How far can you go back? All the way back. All, All the way, way back. So do we know who the first humans were? We have um, theories and uh, I can't say the word hypothesis of human existence back starting in Africa. Um, but that's diving into like really deep. Yeah, um, there's sure. a lot of gaps. But what they the reason you can retrack your origins is say they find a mummy. And they sequence a mummy, so uh, ancient genetic, which is a whole other category from what we're going to dive into here. We're talking about modern genetics, but you can take a mummy and you can say, here are all the living ancestors that came from this mummy, assuming they had children, right? Um, So if you have a match to that mummy, you can say, okay, your people were in this area approximately at this time. You can start having a line throughout the map of where your people evolved. Um, so a lot of fascinating research is being done on Native Americans and did they, you know, make it into the Americas through, through, um, the Bering Strait? Yeah. Like, you know, was there a land mass that has since been flooded in and, um, and then within the tribes, which tribes were the origin tribe and how did they spread? Were the Mayans related to the Incas or? to the Aztecs, et cetera, et cetera. Are they able to do this through, like, bones and stuff like that? Like, yeah, so every, they, yeah, they dig up, essentially, graves, which becomes a lot of uh, ethical um, dilemmas of do you dig up sacred graves and people that used to live and then sequence, you know, pieces of their skull, right? And what do you need? Do you just need any kind of cell and that has all of the DNA? Like, is, is that how that works? Maybe? Yeah, so there's soft tissues. So one, I'm not an expert at this area, but there's soft tissues and they found an area that is pretty well preserved, like right in the skull. Um, and you pull out the soft tissue and you find just pieces of genetics. Um, one big area that makes news is Neanderthal. Uh, so they found Neanderthal bones and they're like, well, we think this is another deviation of Homo sapiens into Neanderthal. And they found fractions of Homo sapien genetics. Well, they eventually were able to get a couple whole genome sequences of Neanderthal genetics and then ran it against ours and said, wow, as humans traveled throughout different parts of the globe, they encountered this other species and interbred with them. So the average human, modern human today, has a portion of Neanderthal genetics in their their DNA. So that leads back to health, right? So you have an idea of where your DNA traveled throughout your family's history, your origin, they encountered uh, Neanderthal genetics. How did that modify us into being who we are today? Well, Neanderthal, depending on how, what percentage your origin of Neanderthal has, could make you more susceptible to colds or less susceptible to colds or give you strengths. You, you know, we just scrambled your genetics differently than other people in society. Hmm. So, so say you sequence you know, yourself 
you can start looking at the individual ATCG code in your genetics and find out where are there increased risks on what you obtained throughout history. And um, these risks could include everything from, you know, cancers to heart disease to... Um, to, you know, like serious diseases like cystic fibrosis, right? That's a genetic anomaly. Um, but you can also look at things that just your facial structure and, and different traits, dimples on your face and stuff like that, that can give you, um, you know, more of a definitive proof that your genetics are telling you the true story. And again, we're so new at trying to figure this stuff out that it's, a lot of big data AI calculations of the probability of you having this genetic means that you have dimples on your face, right? Wow. And so when you say, what is ATCG code? Yeah, so that's the four genetic chemicals that make up all our DNA. Okay. And then from from there, are there certain genes that make you more likely to have heart disease, for example, you mentioned, um, and can you identify that particular gene or is it a group of genes or is it a, a mesh of different uh, things in the code? How, do, how does that all work? And, and what have you found personally, uh, you know, when, when you looked at this stuff? Yeah, so the answer is yes to all those. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's just one one genetic marker that if you have a dominant um, G compared to a C, um, that, you know, you might have increased senses and taste. Um, and, and you might be 2% of the population that has that increased ability just because, you know, your, your family ancestors, maybe four or five great grandmas ago lived in a certain part of the world where that mm. mutation happened in genetics. And then it got passed down from sibling to sibling. Wow. So, so I sequenced my family, myself, my wife, both our sides of the um, family, our parents, um, our children, and we started finding uniqueness within our, our families and what we passed over. And we did find um, positives and negatives, right? It's a double-edged sword. Um, we find... Um, Going into this, were, were, you, were you nervous about what you would find, or were you just just simply curious and you just wanted to do this from a mitigation standpoint? Yeah, that's a deep question. Um, on myself, I didn't really care. Like, I'm like, okay, if I have negatives, like, and I find out I'm going to die in, like, two years, like, okay, I'm better off knowing, right? I was never as nervous sequencing my children than I've been about anything in my life. Like, wow. here, here I am, my, my child, I sequence both kids at, like, one month old. <laughs> so, like, here's this tiny little baby that can barely hold its head up, and I'm I'm going to, like, see kind of a glimpse of what their future looks like. But I also wanted to know, is there something that I need to counter and and look for solutions for as early as possible to give them the best life possible, right? I'm a parent. So I decided, am I better knowing or not knowing? And I leaned on the side of I want to know as much as possible and understand it as much as possible. So my kids probably frightened me more than anything. Is that how your wife felt too? Um... You know, it's been a while um, thinking back on that. I, I think she's, she let me she, – she was curious, and she knew I was going to do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> 
But no, that's interesting. I mean, you did it out of love. You wanted to make sure that your kids had had the best life possible. So, but yeah, yeah, that's an interesting thought, though. Like, do I want to know that you know if something bad's going to happen that I know this and it's there, or do I want to know and and make sure that I can do everything I can to make sure that child has the best life possible? That's exactly. that's kind of an interesting interesting uh, dilemma, I guess. Yeah, so some things I learned about my family, and I, I'm like, okay, so I sequenced my family, and now I know we have maybe an increased risk in lung cancer, right? I'm like, okay, that's good to know it, but it's better to do something about it. So that's where I, um, so let's say lung cancer was increased in my family. Um, so you only smoked light cigarettes then, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> But the cigarettes have filters on them. So I'm right, like, right, yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. We have we have potential increases of lung cancer. Um, let's make environmental changes to lower uh, damage to the lungs. Which, when the cells replicate within the lungs, how can we avoid less mutations in those replications? Right. So I started looking around my house and my environment, and I realized, okay, um, here I am in Cedarburg, Wisconsin, and we have increased. Um, Particle um, smog, you know, alerts from Chicago and Gary, Indiana, that come up Lake Michigan. Why is my area have you know particles in the air, and and why are people concerned about it? So I realized that okay, that's outside, but indoor air quality is even worse. So I started you know increasing the filter levels um, on the HVAC of the house. Um, I put in, you know, individual air filters in the, the family rooms. Um, you know, obviously, you know, eat healthy, don't smoke, drink clean water. There's variables that, you know, in your life you can avoid. Um, then, then I'm starting to think of, okay, that's inside my house, that's outside my house. Um, but what about at businesses and other areas? Um, you know, like if somebody working in the trades and it's it's kicking up dust and particles and stuff like that. How do you know? Like, do they put on masks every time? How do you stop that? And and do individuals that are working in crafts realize they they potentially have genetics that cause increased risk? And should they be in that career path? Yeah, it's interesting. I know uh, Nick, you, you talked a little bit before. You know, being in in tile. Uh, you, yeah. You kind of told us a little bit about a story about yeah. uh, being in you know a fast food restaurant. Oh, okay, I, I could bring that one back <laughs> up a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think what you said about cell replication and uh, damage to cells is a is a big thing to think about when you're talking about the construction industry and just uh, you know living in a home in general because uh, people don't realize that pretty much every building material is hazardous, right? It will cause some kind of cell damage in some way, and especially when we're talking about aerosolized particles. So if you're like okay, so um, the story that I was telling earlier was. Um, a company that I was working for did a lot of uh, remodeling in fast food restaurants. So uh, I'm not going to mention the restaurant in particular uh, <laughs> because they do all the remodels the same way. But basically, uh, they stayed open. There's this new policy where these restaurants will stay open through the remodel, right? So uh, simultaneously, I'll be on one side of a plastic sheet wall with a jackhammer tearing out uh, two layers of tile and concrete um, and just creating plumes of dust. I, I can't 
like breathe in there without a proper respirator. But there's people on the other side of that plastic wall ordering and eating fast food, you know. So in don't, the same building. So don't eat fast food if uh, people are remodeling the tile. <laughs> yeah, I, I would definitely recommend staying away from uh, those restaurants that are in the middle of being remodeled. <laughs> um, but yeah, like uh, things like doing demolition, um, cutting drywall, cutting cement board, cutting um, like tiles for uh, floors, any anything that uh, you know gets aerosolized will do damage in the lungs. And then uh, the, the fact that your body has to repair those cells just increases the number of, of cell divisions that your body undergoes over time. And that just increases the risk for um, cancers and other... What is aerosolized? Is that just particles getting Particles in the air? floating in the air, small enough to actually stay in the air. Are there ones that are more harmful than others? Absolutely, yeah. And, and things that we don't even think about, too. Um, like uh, One that's especially dangerous in my field is silica dust. Uh, same with um, plasters, um, uh, stone workers, stuff like that. Um, essentially, silica is glass. You know, it's, it's sand. It's the glass we use. Porcelain. Um, our ceramics are all made of it. And it's a completely inert substance. It's glass, right? You know, you, it only reacts to, like, hydrofluoric acid. That's, like, the only thing that can etch glass. But when it enters your body in certain ways, like breathing in aerosols, it does enough damage and it stays in your lungs and continues to do damage so that your cells are replicating much faster than someone who is not exposed to that. So over time, as you're collecting silica particles in your lungs, they're continuing to do more damage, and you become you have a much higher risk of things like silicosis and uh, emphysema and lung cancer. Uh, so it's always something to consider, and especially when uh, sequencing your genes too. Um, well, we have what's what's referred to as gene expression. So if you know that you... Okay, so genes can be turned on and off by other genes, right? So you have genes in your body that are completely dormant, will not do anything your entire life, that don't have anything to do with how your body works, unless there's a stimulus that turns on that gene expression. And that could be the presence of another gene. So if you have this group of genes that are in the correct sequence, you could be more at risk for something like silicosis because mm. of you know, silica dust exposure. And that's an incredibly complicated concept to attack. So, we're, you know, the science isn't quite there yet, but we're really, we're making big steps towards that. And if, if we can, if we can tell by our gene sequence what, uh, what industries would be most hazardous, hazardous for us to work in, and that could even be, you know, integrated into like career decisions and things like that. Um, not just, you know, making sure that your environment is safe. Talk about Gattaca, right? The, the movie in, uh, I think it was 1997, there was a movie called Gattaca. And this individual wanted to, um, you know, essentially be an astronaut going up into space. He had to fake that he was somebody else because his genetics were inferior for space travel. Um, he was always like uh, carving off his like fingerprints and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. He's carving off fingerprints, scraping himself down yeah, so he's not right. leaving skin cells. Yep. And uh, that's um, what it was, skin cells. And you know, he he eventually wins in the end. But like, how far are we away from a future where it's like, hey, you're better off having this job over that job? Right. And what happens if that conflicts with your passion? 
And uh, what happens if your employers get access to your genetic to see that you're error-prone in routine tasks? So that's an actual study that I know about in my family. There could be certain individuals that are error-prone in routine tasks and others that are not error-prone in routine tasks. Wow. Purely from a genetic trigger. Wow. How many different things did you did you find out about? So, like, there's error-prone. Like, did you find out about uh, silicosis? I didn't know that was a thing until just now. But, like, uh, you know, like, how many different things were you able to find out about? Yeah, so um, I'm not sure about that one in, in particular. You might be able to um, customize your research. You know, once you have your, your full genome, you can take other people's, um, like, you know, PhD-level published medical studies and find that, you know, that, that particular area of your genetics and find out, you know, does does yours apply to that research? Right? Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Um, within my family, I probably looked at, over 300 different areas of um, of interest and kind of dove down of like a really fun example is um, your taste buds. Um, you know, part of my family had taste buds turned on and others turned off. So we tried different foods, like everything from a, like a bitter taste in a Brussels sprout, right? So some people in my family, you know, could taste the bitter and others couldn't. I myself cannot taste bitter, which is about, I think it's about 11% of the population cannot taste bitter. And they, and this is how I've always been. How could I possibly have known that I didn't taste bitter because I've never tasted bitter. Right? Start liking coffee at an early age. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like it, it just changes like the reason why you might like something and I don't, right. I like something and you don't could go all the way back to genetics. Yeah. Or it could be a, yeah, it could be a taste bud thing, right? Exactly. Which is really is wild to think about. And I wonder how far, like like you said, you're talking about employers that um, are able to see how error prone you are based on your genetics. But I'm wondering how far you can take that yeah. almost to see, you know, and, and I don't know if you think about, you know, whether or not we have free will or not, but like, can you almost see, you know, predetermined what somebody's life is going to look like in a, in a general sense, just from the genes itself, you know, it's approaching some kind of dystopian discussion <laughs> here, <laughs> a brave new world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I have a hilarious story about that. Um, so the whole law in, in the United States is who owns your genetics, right? And who's allowed to ask for your genetics. So there's this hilarious story of a manufacturing company and, and there was a decision made in the company that everybody was really mad at the owner of the company. So somebody of this 30 some people in the factory, somebody took a big crap on the boss's desk, just nasty crap. So the boss got mad, and he couldn't figure out who took a shit on his desk. <laughs> so he, in his great wisdom, sequenced the poop, but now he only had one one genetic strand of who took the crap. So he, he required all 30 people in the factory to, do, to submit um, samples for genetic sequencing. And they found out who it was, of who, crap, who crapped on the desk, and they fired him. And he did a lawsuit. And in the United States, employers cannot ask employees to submit things. So everybody in the factory got more than a million dollar payout. What? Including, wow. the, including the guy who took a shit on his desk. So not only did he crap on his <laughs> boss's desk and knows he pissed them off, he was paid over a million dollars for that crap. Oh my gosh, this is a true story. <laughs> true story. Epic fail. <laughs> so... 
So usually laws have to catch up with society. In this case, genetics started moving so slow that the laws came in place prior to us getting to a point where um, you could use a tabletop device to genetically sequence. Um, so right now, they can't have individual biasness towards somebody on their on their genetics, but like. Look at healthcare providers, right? They're they're allowed to make group decisions based off individual health um, sequencing or, or probabilities, right? So, say say I have um, a rare form of cancer that could cost millions of dollars, and I'm in a they can't increase my premiums or anything individual towards me, but they can increase the group's costs. So if you're the group, like an employer, exactly. Yeah. Like so, say I'm one of five hundred people in my, um, what do they call it? Like a group um, health insurance. They can increase the group's uh, cost because I'm I, I increase the standard deviation of cost expectations. Wow. Well, that's that's interesting stuff. This is a, a very interesting topic that we could go down a lot of different pathways. I'm starting to think a little bit more about gene sequencing and you know patents around you know new types of of uh, things. But uh, it, you know, if if someone wanted to get started with genetics and they wanted to learn more about their genome, like where should where should they go? Yeah, so just in the last couple of years, you can sequence yourself, not a, not a whole genome, but a, one that give you a lot of answers, on 23andMe, about 50 bucks. You spit into a little uh, container and you, you send it into the laboratory. And about uh, three months later, you'll have a profile that kind of gives you, you know, some of the FDA-approved things that they're allowed to tell you, like, um, you know, do you have a um, like the dimples on your face, and what, are, what what is the probability that you had your your iris color in your eye? Um, and then it'll tell you about really you know extreme diseases that maybe you should go look for. Um, so twenty three andme dot com is uh, where I would recommend people go. Great. So is there some disparity in how those different uh, companies organize their data? Because I did hear some research about like. Um, you know, the the basic information you get back from somebody like 23andMe, um, just like what they send you the first first uh, you know, encounter with them, is um, maybe possibly based on the population of the area they tell you that you're from, like, either historically or some companies have that data that's like, you know, today's data. Who's living in France right now and are you related to them, you know? Yeah, so there's two sides of 23andMe. Um, one's the ancestry of who you're related to in the database, and the other one's healthcare. When you start focusing in on the healthcare side of things, it, it, it's based off of um, published medical research. Um, so you have your your code, and then how does it apply to medical research? And it gives you a probability of, you know, one star to five stars on how much they think this research aligns to your genetics. Sure. And we're so early in our understanding of this stuff that um, the FDA actually swung in and said, hey, you got to stop telling people that this is medical, um, medical advice because, you know, just because that person has a, a dominant T um, chemical 
That only applies to you know this this type of area with these type of people because that's what the research came from. So sure. there, you really have to break down into the right. details. Or, or yeah, if you have like a marker for a specific type of cancer, you know, are you going to have elective surgery to remove an organ you don't need to or something? Yeah, exactly. So, so um, even 23andMe recommends before you make any large decisions, um, talk to a geneticist, talk to medical professionals, and, and and, and you really have to dive into the, the actual details of what it what it's trying to tell you. Um, I mean, that's a that's a huge point. Maybe, you know, the FDA was freaking out when people were being told that they have you know a high chance of Alzheimer's disease. Right. And then people said, "Well, I'm not getting Alzheimer's," and they put a gun in their mouth. Right. Right. So you have to be extremely careful on understanding what the data is telling you, and do you have that ability to understand what it, that data is trying to tell you? Sure. So seek out professionals if you dive down this area <laughs> yeah. before making life life changing decisions. <laughs> I know some of the other things that um, you know people are concerned with is like what are they doing with this data? You know, like Twenty Three and Me has this whole database of all these people that you know have all this stuff. Are they going to you know sell it to the highest bidder for you know? To figure out how they can massively control a population or for warfare or something like that, right? So, yeah, uh, yeah that's a, a really good question. Um, so, the reason why you get to do this for $50 is because they're going to ask you over and over and over again, can we use this data for medical research? And if you say yes, suddenly your genetics is sitting in um, large collections of other people's genetics. Um, being sold to, say, 15 different universities, and you have, you know, 10 people at each of these 15 different universities all digging through your genetics. Well, the genetic, you can't, it's very difficult to anonymize your DNA as an individual. So, um, essentially, do you get permission to try to advance these medical researches um, and that's how they make money. So 50 bucks was just covering their cost of the materials and shipping. They make their real money on medications that they discover based off all these genetic profiles. I guess what, what almost worries me is if you can find that there's certain people with a genetic predisposition, predisposition to, um, I don't know, something really odd. I don't know. They, they, you know, they'll get sick if they have a certain smell or something like that. And all of a sudden everyone gets these puffs and wherever, you know, to, you know, you could control populations that way if it got to the wrong hands. Right. Yeah. So this one hits particularly close, um, to my family. Um, we have Jewish genetics. Imagine if this was available when the Nazi regime was in power, right? They could just go around sequence. Everybody say, you're dead. You're not, you're dead. You're not. Um, so there's going to be tons of privacy issues. Um, it's a lot of things that society needs to work out. This is happening if we like it or not. And we didn't even get into CRISPR-Cas9 where you can start genetically altering um, you know, human embryos and modifying and creating superhumans. Um, so there's laws in place that slow that down. In, in various countries, but there's always right across the border where people can start making superhumans and start deciding what pieces of genetics are inferior to others and start modifying humanity. So the future is both exciting and frightening at the same time. And where do we find that ethical balance? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think maybe we can dig into that another time on another podcast. Uh, I do have to, I have another, uh, bumping up against another thing right now, but I think this has been a fascinating uh, conversation. Um, is there anything that you guys want to plug at all before we uh, wrap up here? Hopefully so. Yeah, no, uh, thanks for having us on, on the podcast. And, um, um, you know, if, you, if you're listening to this and you're around Milwaukee on April 11th or 12th, 2019, uh, downtown, uh, look up CypherCon, the hacker conference. We'd love to have you. We talk about biohacking and genetics there, too. And is there a, a website or a yeah. t- Twitter or where can they find it? I guess they could Google it, right? Yeah, Google Google hackers in Milwaukee, <laughs> hacker conferences. So, um, well, thanks for listening and thanks for having us. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening all the way through the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that. I did look up when the genome was finally uh, mapped and completed. It wasn't until 2006 Uh, The year 2000, they were almost complete with the project, but it wasn't until 2006 that the final uh, chromosome was mapped. So there you have it. And I'm going to go ahead and play you out with the whole song of uh, Blue Raspberry that we listened to in the intro. If you like it, you can purchase the album Flavor Crystals on Bandcamp. That's T ngl.bandcamp.com or if you google tngl and bandcamp i'm sure you'll find it and you can go ahead and purchase it for you know whatever you want to pay whatever you think it's worth go on there and you can download it or you can check it out on soundcloud as well here it is blue raspberry